Hello, and welcome to Collective Bargain, the labor-focused show brought to you by the Heartland Pod. My name is Glenn Coggy Jr. I'm a union member, political activist, and run my own labor-centered blog, Laborfront. Learn more about me at laborfront.com and more about the Heartland Pod and all the shows from MidMap Media over at theheartlandcollective.com, where you can get shows like the Heartland Pod, Dirt Road Democrat, and more. Plus, you can sign up as a member to support this show, read in-depth articles, and join like-minded folks looking to change the conversation in Heartland politics. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, it's Glenn from Laborfront. On today's episode of Collective Bargain on the Heartland Pod, we'll be talking to TJ Sandell. TJ is a business agent with Plumbers Local 27, and we're going to turn it over to him so he can tell us about himself. TJ, how you doing, brother? Good, Glenn. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you. Again, I'm I'm TJ Sandell. I'm the business agent for Plumbers Local 27 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm also the president of the Great Lakes Building and Construction Trades Council in my area. Um, our jurisdiction is uh, covering part of uh, Western Pennsylvania. I'm, of course, a member of the United Association of Journeymen and Apprentices of the Plumbing and Pipe Fitting Industry. So I'm glad to be here today and we can have this conversation. Well, brother, I'm uh, honored to have you on the show. It's been a little while since I've been able to do any interviews and Thank you for taking time out of your schedule on a Sunday afternoon uh, to come on and talk unions, politics, unionism, and what it means to our economy, especially there in Pennsylvania or here in St. Louis. Um, I don't think people realize the economic value that organized labor brings to the economies of our cities, towns, areas, neighborhoods. Uh, would you care to uh, talk on that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean... We all have battles to fight. Um, of course, we have right to work looming all the time in different states. I'm fortunate here in Pennsylvania that we've managed to combat right to work. Um, it's really funny when you when you talk about right to work. Um, it's great how they give cutesy names to things that are rotten. I mean, right to work is rotten. It's right to work for less. And uh, we've had some, you know, bad uh, legislators trying to push that agenda and push that narrative and luckily we were we had the strength as far as uh collectively as labor to block those issues from coming up here but for, further than that uh back to your question is you know there's a lot of community benefits to organized labor you know and uh economies even local and state economies thrive when you have uh have jobs that pay a living wage with benefits. So when you have higher union density in your region, you have a better economy. It's just common sense. Oh, absolutely. And without it, the entire economy struggles. You lose tax, the income on the additional, you lose the taxes on the income that union maker, union workers make and bring to the economy. And when you lose those taxes, everything suffers. I'm fond of saying that America's economy was never in the shape it's in when General Motors was our number one private employer. Now it's either Walmart or Amazon. 
And when you take all those union UAW jobs out of the economy and replace them with non-union Walmart or Amazon jobs, you lose the economic stimulus on tens of thousands of dollars. And when you lose that, not only do you lose the economic stimulus, you lose the income tax on that. You lose the uh, buying power of the people that live within that area. I mean, the whole economy suffers our roads and bridges, our first responders, our hospitals, our schools. So it's very important to have a vibrant economy. You need a strong middle class and labor unions are the foundation of that middle class. Now, in your job as a business agent there in Pennsylvania, what is your role and responsibility in relation to the union and how you interact with the members? Well, I have a lot of functions, and I don't want to dive too deep into it because it's not terribly interesting. But, um, you know, I, I help manage the day-to-day -day operations of, of the union. Um, I take care of manpower management, dispatch for the contractors, because, of course, we have a referral hall and people um, work for different contractors and are dispatched out of our referral hall. Um, one of the things I'm deeply involved in is the political process, because of course, if you're in a union, you're in politics. And that's one of my jobs is to try to go out and um, educate people about candidates and incumbent legislators that are in our best interests or are not in our best interests. So it's it can be... Um, a difficult thing to do sometimes because some people have, you know, certain ideologies so ingrained in them that even when you present to them that maybe so-and-so candidate is not in their best interests from a labor standpoint, they might be two issue voters that don't want to hear any of that. And no matter what you tell them, they're not going to listen to me or you or whoever. Right. I want to back up just a little bit on one of the things that you talked about was dispatching jobs from the uh, union hall. I don't think the general public realizes that one of the biggest benefits that labor unions provide to the companies, and in your case, it would be the contractors, is the ability to call in well-qualified, highly skilled tradesmen when a company has a big job. Instead of if a company is trying to hire somebody and they need 30 plumbers for a big job, where are they going to get them? Off the street? You don't know the quality of the people you're going to get, but they can call the hall and TJ Sandell can send out 40 highly skilled, well-trained tradesmen to take care of that job. Yeah, 100%. And and that goes across all the trades. That's not just the, the plumbers or the pipe fitters or or whomever. That's that's every building trades union, you know, um, NAB2, North American Building Trades Unions, the national organization, collectively we spend on training our workforce about $2 billion a year wow. for, for all the trades. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of training. And, you know, studies have been done that proves that uh, union skilled craftsmen are the most highly trained workforce in the country. Well, I wouldn't, would never doubt that. Not at all. I don't know if you're aware, but I started my career out as an electrician in the IBEW. I remember. So I went through the apprenticeship, and I know the value that a, a good apprenticeship has on training and creating skilled workers. Um, but then you want to get into the politics thing. And one of the most frustrating things, and I've seen it throughout my more than 40 years as a union activist, 
is union members that continue to vote against their own interest. And typically what I have found is when the union isn't doing things the way they want, they're some of the first people to blame the unions and say how weak they are, never mind the fact that it's their votes that create legislation that weaken the unions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They're just, they're hitchhiking and they're not realizing it. You know, they're they're running on the backs and then working against their best interests. It makes no sense. And that that's a hard thing to overcome, I think, because, you know, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, that they're stuck on certain issues that they may or may not be educated on. And they, you know, they don't think about the implications that might have to their way of life. You know, you got to vote for what's in the best interest of feeding your family, you know, right. and it's hard. It's hard for some people to uh, to understand that, you know, yeah. and a part of what I do is recruitment, too. And that's one of the things that um, is important is to recruit new members and organize and grow union union density everywhere. Right. Yeah, I'll never separate the ballot box from the bread box. If the politicians are not supporting me in my job and my ability to make a good wage for my family, I won't vote for them. Simple as that. Well, just take a look at what happened in the past seven years with the National Labor Relations Board. When Donald Trump was president, he he appointed Eugene Scalia as the Secretary of Labor. Eugene Scalia has made a career union busting for corporate interests for his entire life. And the relations board appointees were the same union busting attorneys. So we struggled a lot during that time as far as the building trades and probably the UAW. We we struggled. Uh, there was policies going out there. They attacked our apprenticeship programs. I mean, it was a disaster. And as soon as it, the election was over and we got it straightened out, we have the most pro-union National Labor Relations Board that we've had in 50 years. And it's showing. And they're making it easier for workplaces to organize. Under the Trump administration, they had cut OSHA inspectors to the lowest level since the inception of OSHA. And Eugene Skelly, you nailed it, brother. He was horrible for organized labor. They tried to uh, eliminate overtime protection for a lot of workers. And they did that by renaming or rebranding the positions that the people held and uh, calling people managers so that they would be on salary instead of hourly, instead of the workers. But even in addition to that, they went after us on a lot of other issues like our ability to organize, which you covered, our ability to strike. Um, strike, nobody wins in a strike. It's always the absolute last resort for any union. And when we go out on strike, it's not the union choosing that. It is the company forcing the union to go out on strike by refusing to offer a fair and equitable contract. Yeah, you're no, you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've been fortunate the last you know, over 10 years here, you know, locally, we haven't been on strike, although some of other locals in the area have. Um, we have a large um, locomotive manufacturer here, Wabtech, and uh, they were recently on strike. You may have seen that in the news. Um, and Wabtech, I mean, was just gutting their retirement, not giving an equitable raise. Um, they had a tiered rate system. I'm sure you're familiar with that. 
and Wabtec, the union there, which is United Electrical and Radio Workers, they just had enough. And they said, you know what, that's it. We're going on strike. And they held them out for, you know, two months or so. And they finally got an equitable deal. You know, it's frustrating because I have not done research on Webtech, so I won't speak on that. But I will speak on General Motors and the big three in the auto industry. While the general public was complaining about the request of a 25% pay increase, um, actually started out at 40%, the president, Sean Fain, while the general public was complaining about all that, the big three was making at a record profits. They have made billions and billions of dollars off our backs. They could not make that without the productivity of the auto workers. And it's the same at the locomotive factory. Right. It's the same with the plumbers. They're making big money off our backs, but the general public call the unions greedy. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. But in in your case at UAW in particular, the concessions that you guys took previously made you go backwards even before you even got to the table. So right. that that greed like was multiplied at that level. There's certain media outlets and, and groups that want to spin that narrative that, you know, you guys are being greedy because you're asking, we're not being greedy. We're asking for something fair and reasonable. Right. And when you get beat down for 10 years or however long, given concessions, given into tier systems, you know, losing money, you know, that you need to retire. I mean, something's got to give when they're making record profits. It's just not fair. Right. No, you mentioned it. Uh, and you you hit it, hit the nail on the head. We made concessions in 2009 that totaled up to about $11 billion in concessions. They created the tier system. Our workers were making half of what they used to make. There's people at General Motors who used to work at Ford and Chrysler who are just now getting back to where they were when they entered bankruptcy 13 or 14 years ago. And when people want to blame the unions and the high wages for uh, plants that cl close down and move overseas, who do they blame when it's non-union plants that shut down and move overseas? It's not us. And I get so tired of hearing the general public blame the workers. It's frustrating. But that's why we're having these shows is so we can do our best to educate them and talk about the benefits that unions do bring to the table, but also about the importance of electing politicians that recognize what we bring to the table. And Joe Biden has done that. He's been a good president for working families. And uh, I know the UAW has come out and endorsed him already, and it's created some heartburn with some of our members. But he is the best president uh, for working families I've seen in my lifetime. And I've been around quite a while. You sure have. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. no, no, you're you're absolutely right. And and the UA, the UA, my organization, um nationally, we're backing Joe Biden as well. And you're right, you're right that there's a lot of stuff I watch on so social media. Uh there's a lot of banter out there from some of the people that aren't happy about that. But I think it, you know, it's it's not questionable to say that Joe Biden isn't the best president for labor in the past 70 years. I mean, FDR was probably the, the last guy that, to do as much as Joe Biden. And it, it, without question, I mean, 
and it creates some static and I watch on social media and, and a lot of it boils down to is these members aren't educated. They're not educated on the issues. They don't see what's going on. They don't know things like Pennsylvania got $6.6 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure bill. $6.6 billion. They just, there was a bridge around the corner for me that was falling down. They just rebuilt the entire bridge. It's brand new. That's, that's building trades guys working on that job. It's iron workers, heavy highway carpenters, cement masons, laborers. That's what that money came directly into the pockets of our members, and they still can't see the forest for the trees on some of this stuff. You know, what's ironic is that, as you said, that money goes into the workers. Those workers take that money and uh, they go out and they eat in the restaurants in your community. They shop in the grocery stores. The people who are union members in that community are sitting next to the people in church that complain every day about unions making too much money. Um, the bottom line, and, and I think you nailed it, is it's education or, or the refusal to look at the facts as presented. And people get hung up on, I, I call it the five Gs, God, guns, gays, gynecology, which is abortion, and greed. And they let the, any one or all of those five Gs get in the way of voting to protect their own interests. When you support people who support corporate profit instead of workers uh, making a fair and decent living, there's something wrong. Right. Well, don't forget about the border, too. Right. Oh, yeah, the border. That's the border that. that they are great at complaining about but refuse to do anything to fix. Right. And that, that's the latest one. The, the problem that these uh, right-wing you know, pundits are having right now is that they took the boogeyman and killed him because Roe v. Wade was the thing that they ran on. And that was the thing that, you know, they scared all these people with for so many years. And now that's taken away from them. So now all of a sudden there's a big crisis at the border because they don't have that Roe versus Wade to campaign on anymore. It's not on their it's not on their platform. You know, Donald mm -hmm. Trump gets on TV and says, I did that. I overturned Roe v. Wade, you know, so there, the misinformation that flies out there is staggering, you know. Well, what's the old saying? It takes less time for a lie to get around the world than it does for the truth to get out of bed or something like that. Yeah, and I think that sums it up pretty good. We as union officials or former union officials, speaking of myself, I think that we may have dropped the ball throughout the last few decades of trying to not just educate our members, but educate the political parties on the important role that we play and getting them to understand that we want companies to succeed. We don't want them to go in, out of business. We want them to succeed, but we want them to share that success with the workers that created that success. And I don't think we've done a good enough job of expressing that to uh, the political uh, parties. What is your thoughts on that? No, I, I would agree with that. You know, it, it was it was traditionally that unions aligned with the Democrats. And that dynamic is changing a little bit because there are Democrats out there that are that are not in the best interests of labor. They've lost touch with us. 
And on, on the other side of it, there are Republicans out there that are all union busting mentality people. There, we have some friends, you know, from the a building trades perspective, we have friends that are legislators who are Republicans, but they're Republicans that aren't extreme. And they're, they, they're, you know, Republicans who've had parents that were steel workers or they, they understand the value of what we do, particularly uh, with any labor union, particularly with the building trades uh, and how we train people. So, you know, it's, it's, we did do over the past, you know, 40, 50 years, we haven't done a good job as, as labor unions collectively to bring people that education that they need. And now it's so polarized that it's even harder to do. It's even harder to do. Like some people just won't even talk to you about it. You know, one of the things that we were going to be doing at our local, uh, which is UAW Local 2250 in Wentzville, I'm calling it a CAP cast. CAP is our community action program. That's the political action arm of the UAW. And we're going to live stream interviews. We're going to live stream them to our social media outlets, interviews of candidates. And we'll have moderators that will be able to field some of the questions that come in. We're not going to allow people to come in and just say ignorant stuff because we want it to be have a respectful dialogue. But I want to give an opportunity to the members to be able to tune in and ask real questions. What are their positions on some of the issues that our members have concerns about? And if I can get uh, both parties to come on, I'm all for it. You know, I it's but it's got to be respectful. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. You know, with the endorsement process, I don't know how it is with you guys, but we send out questionnaires to the uh, candidates they fill them out, and then we have interviews with them sometimes. Um, if they're an incumbent, we base it on their voting records. If it's a, if they have to meet a 70 vote, I'm sorry, a 70% threshold to get our endorsement. That's how it's always been in the past. And that way we can minimize um, getting anybody that's not going to vote to protect our jobs. But is that how you guys do it? Do you have a questionnaire process? Or how does it Excuse me, how does it go there in Pennsylvania? Well, I, I, I can't speak for every single trade, you know, because everybody's a little bit different. But overwhelmingly, yes, a lot of the local unions, um, the delegates of building trades unions, they we use questionnaires and voting records. So we we pretty much, you know, if, if there's an incumbent legislator that, you know, voted for a bad bill, you know, numerous times of course we're not gonna back that candidate it makes no sense but yeah the 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 basic um framework is the same we we do questionnaires we bring them into our council meetings we let them talk we let the delegates ask them questions uh and then we make our decisions from there yeah i think that's pretty much pro probably about the way it goes most everywhere and you can find out a lot about the politicians when you get a chance to sit down and look them in the eye and ask them questions. Um, in addition to doing a better job of educating our members and the politicians, we have to do a better job of holding the elected officials accountable, regardless of their political party. If they are not voting to support funding a bridge across the river and, and, for the building trades or uh, voting to protect manufacturing, we need to make sure we're educating our members to call and write their congressmen, call and write their senators, 
and ask them to protect our jobs. And I don't think we've done a very good job of that. When they start hearing from our members in mass numbers, I think we can move them on legislation like that as well. Yeah, I would I would somewhat agree with that. Um, at, at a state level, it's a little different. Um, for us here in Pennsylvania, uh, our state building trades, they do do some action like that where they'll have uh, a form letter and they'll ask us to send it out to everyone and have them send that form letter to the, whether it be the legislators or the governor or whoever it might be. Um, the governor is really good with us. We've had, a, you know, we supported the governor, Governor Shapiro. He's done a really great job so far. But yeah, that action does get taken. I don't think we do enough of it is the problem. Because people, I think members fail to realize how much the down ballot stuff matters. Right. And it it matters a lot. Like the school boards and the township supervisors and the county councils and city council, all those things really really matter you know it's not just at the fed level that all this stuff happens it's at the state level in fact i would i would say that for us a lot of the stuff that filters down from the fed it matters but the stuff that comes through our state matters more you know like michigan just flipped they were they got suckered into right to work and they dismantled it and now they have prevailing wage again that's action that's the stuff that matters that's what people need to be energized about, to go out and do that. Now that Michigan's done it, maybe West Virginia can go back and do it. There, you know, it, it's it, That's the kind of thing that empowers workers is to, to see those things get reversed that destroys labor. You're 100% correct. And we have got to be very vigilant in trying to recruit union members to run for these offices. Start at school board. Start at your city council, work your way up through the system, get involved in your community, get involved in the politics in your community and run for office. Nobody can better represent people in construction or union members than people who come from that walk of life. There was a time where the UAW had three state representatives in Jeff City that were members of the UAW. And that we knew that we had a voice up there. We knew that we had people up there that we're going to try to hold the line for working families. And we need more of that. I think that should be a nationwide uh, issue is where we are out recruiting union members. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We need to do that um, cooperatively, not only as, you know, I'm part of the building trades. We try to do that cooperatively as, as a national organization, but it, it really needs coordination of everyone, not just the trades you know, UAW, UE, you know, even AFSCME, SCIU, we need to nationally start doing that. And I know that there's problems. There is problems sometimes because we don't see eye to eye on some issues with the different labor unions. And, you know, it goes back and forth a little bit. But the middle ground is we need to build up what we have and keep the momentum going on growing our union density across the United States. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And a good example of where there's sometimes conflicts arise between unions, uh, I don't remember what year it was, it's probably been about 15 years ago, Missouri was trying to pass a proposition that would in, in, uh, put in a gas tax. At the time, we had four assembly plants in the St. Louis metropolitan area. 
the UAW was opposed to the gas tax because we were building full-size trucks, vans, uh, Ford Explorers. You know, we were not building gas-sipping vehicles. Anytime there was any kind of proposition it would increase the price of gas, it could adversely affect our uh, production in our facilities where we had people working. So we were opposed to it, but we made a deal with the building trades. We would not get out and actively go against them. Um, but then there will be a time when we'll need a favor from, from the trades. And when they were shutting our plants down, everybody came out in full force and did what they could to help us. Sure. I understand that. When the, um, when the Wabtec plant went on strike, all the construction work that we were doing in there ceased to, operate because we wouldn't cross the picket line they they were at the gate we left all our people left they closed their gang boxes and that was it we stayed out of the plant even though there were some threatening things going on about bringing in scabs to you know do the work they wanted to get done it didn't happen really so that was good but right. you know we stuck with them and kept our word and by the so way when i buy a vehicle it, it has to have that label in the windshield or I'm not buying it. Just so I agree 100%. 100%. You know, it's kind of the friction sometimes that arises in the organized labor within between the unions. And it, it reminds me a little bit of our families. You know, we don't always get along and there's uh, sometimes skirmishes in our families. But anybody from the outside that comes after any member of our family, they'll have hell to pay. And I think that's what we need to remember when we're an organized labor. We don't have to agree on everything, but at the end of the day, your fight and my fight are the same. And that's better quality jobs, not just for our members, but for the people in our community as well. Right. Absolutely. And the phenomenon is catching on now. If you look at what's going on around the country with Starbucks and Amazon and all these other smaller well, they're big corporations, but they're smaller places of employment. And they're starting to bring, they're starting to say, hey, we've had enough. You you, you uh, exploited us and took advantage of us. You don't want to give us a living wage. We're going to do something about it. And now right. that we have a, la a National Labor Relations Board that actually lets you organize, uh, those things are starting to come to fruition. And, and young people are paying attention to that. They're paying attention to it, and they're the ones that are getting getting on board with that because they they they're not going to take it, and they're seeing the value in it. DJ, the younger generation that's coming in right now are better educated. They're more tech savvy. They have the knowledge and the ability, and they have the empathy to change the direction this country is going. They don't see the LGBTQ community the way boomers like my generation see it. They don't see the black and brown people. They don't view them when the same through the same eyes that my generation did. And it's it's refreshing. And I'll tell you what, I've been doing this like we said earlier for a very long time. And I feel like the Calvary is arising. The Calvary is these kids that are 18 to 35. And that and I don't know if that's Gen X or Z or ABC, whatever the heck it is. But these younger people, they are not putting up with the nonsense that the old timers like me have been out there spewing. I'm excited for us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the thing is that this coming, this upcoming election this year, the lion's share of the voters are 
you know, millennials and Gen Z. That's the lion's share of the millennials. And, right. you know, 6,000 boomers a day are dying. Yeah. You know, so You're looking right at me when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> TJ, hope, go ahead, no, brother. I hope you I hope you live a very long time. But oh, I'm I'm just saying, I'm just saying that the, the voting demographic is changing now because the, the boomers were the biggest group and now they're starting this that's slipping away. And the millennials, you know, they're still Gen Xers, but the millennials and the Gen Z are are moving up into the ranks and they're not taking any of this crap. Nope. Because, because I, I you know, social media is a double-edged sword, if you ask me. It's terrible, but it's great because yeah. it it spreads a lot of misinformation, but it also on counterintuitively or counterly it it um it educates a lot of people. People have access to information they never had before. Right. And that's and, and that though that generation, the Gen Z, you can see all that in them. They're educating themselves. You know, it's not a, it's not just about, well, my uncle. Fred says this and he must be right. No, they fact check these people now. You know what I mean? So it's it's changed a lot in that regard, technology. It has. And you know, you nailed it again. Um the internet and social media is is like any other tool. It can be used to build or it can be used to tear down. Oh, yeah. And I see members that use it to do nothing but tear down. And, and a good example right now would be the Republican Party. They're sitting back and they're watching the house on fire and everybody's saying, Why don't, which would be the border crisis, and everybody's saying, grab a bucket, come on, let's go put this fire out. And they're saying, no, we're good, you know, let it burn. It can be used to build or tear down guys like you, myself, and there's a lot of other labor podcasts out there. We want to use it to build. Doesn't mean we can't be critical of our elected officials regardless of political party, but if you base it on facts, if your criticism is rooted in facts, it's hard to dispel that. But when you're making stuff up, whether it's about Hunter Biden's laptop or whatever, and you're using that as a wedge issue to attack your members and leadership, then it's wrong. So yeah, I, it's gotta be used for good or I hope they get rid of the bad. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt. And the whole the whole situation with the border they were offered a solution and they just said no way we're walk we're, they just walked away from the entire solution right and and it it's kind of shocking to me in a way when Mitch McConnell comes out and agrees in the Senate he agrees with the bill that they came up with they agreed upon bipartisan in a bipartisan way and you know because they're lord and savior went to Mike Johnson and said, hey, this this will look bad for me because it's a win for Biden. Don't run it. Isn't doing something about the problem more important than a political, you know, agenda? They don't want to they don't want to fix it. Right. They put party over policy and they ignore the needs of the people who put them in office. What's frustrating to me is the people who put them in office are going to turn right around and vote for many of these people again, knowing that they stood by while the house was burning. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, that's definitely an issue. It is. So the solution from us as union officials, past and present, 
is to do everything we can to put out factual statements and back it up. We can't be afraid to take on the divisive issues and the challenges that that brings by not making sure that we sit down and have the hard conversations with our members. They are hard conversations sometimes. Well, I think everybody growing up has been told forever the two things you don't discuss are politics and and religion. And here we are diving right into the middle of it. But Uh, yeah, head first into it. But you have to because the, the a lot of our members just aren't fed truthful information. No. And when they, when they vote against their own self-interest, that's not good. That's not good for labor. That's not good for their pocketbook. And that's what they really got to be aware of is that the choices that they're making affect your pocketbook. That's correct. They affect your ability to take care of your family and provide a comfortable living for your family. And I don't know what more it takes for people to understand that we have to get people elected regardless of political party. The question isn't why does the union support Democrats? The question should be why don't the politicians support working families? And if they don't, we need to find other candidates to run against them or we need to find ways to hold them accountable for not representing working families. Yeah. And you know what? There's some truth to term limits. You know, some of these incumbents get in there on both sides and they stay way longer than they should. And when they get too comfortable in that, they stop caring. They stop caring about the little guy. And that's an issue. We have term term limits in Missouri and uh, our state house and state senate. And it's made a mockery of our legislative process. We have people that come in there knowing that they're only going to be serving a certain amount of years. So they push through all the harshest legislation that they can, knowing that they're going to be out of there. And they don't have the knowledge or the ability to work some legislation through the system. Their lack of knowledge uh, prevents them from hearing other solutions to a problem that they're trying to solve. And I think that term limits, in my opinion, Every time you go to the polls, you're exercising your right to do a term limit. So that's right. my thought on it. Well, maybe maybe it's not um, term limits per se that need to be done. But I'll, I'll just give you an example of, of something that I think works. The UA, when you're an officer of the um, UA, if you're an international rep or whatever you are, you can run for re-election. But once you turn 65, you can't run for re-election anymore. And I think that's good. I mean... Look at Chuck Grassley. He's like 95 years old. Like he's going to run another term. I mean, he's to the point where he needs to be out of there. There's, and that he's not the only one. I'm just using him as an example. But I mean, there needs to be a limit to we need some more younger people being engaged and moving up. And that's happening to some degree. But I think it would be faster if, you know, we came up with some kind of criteria that said, hey, you know, you're. You know, you've been here 30 years, you're 65, you know, it's time to retire. I don't entirely disagree with that. Um, what I would like to see to resolve some of these issues that we see going on in our uh, state houses and our federal elected officials would be elimination of dark money, the elimination of Citizens United, rein in the lobbyists and their ability to spend behind the backs of everybody else and by these politicians 
Um, I read something one time that for every U.S. congressman and senator, there's two or three uh, lobbyists from the pharmaceutical industry. Why? You know, because that's how they get their stuff done. They are literally this ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, literally writes the legislation, submits it to the politicians that they own, and those people go in and support it and uh, put it out and look for to try to get it passed in the state legislatures and state Senate. And all of it is anti-public school, anti-union. Uh, um, that is one of, the, one of the worst organizations out there. And they own hundreds of our elected officials. Sure. That, that you know, I've always said, and I've said this for years now, that Citizens United was the single worst ruling that's ever happened to this country. It, right. it totally annihilated our the fairness of our elections, you know, as far as the political system. Because when you have, you know, corporations considered people and they can contribute unlimited amounts of money to campaigns. I mean, why does it cost $84 million to run for Senate? I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense for a job that pays to, you know, 175 grand a year. It doesn't make any sense. It's just like what you said, these, you know, big pharma or, you know, some of the big oil interests and stuff in different types of corporations, the Koch brothers, they can just give unlimited amounts of money to these politicians and there's nothing that can be done about it. And until you fix that problem, there isn't going to be that corporate interest out of politics. They're going to, you can basically buy and sell a house or Senate seat. And that's the way it is. And they're all owned by corporations. And that's exactly the problem that I have with term limits. So what if hypothetically a Chuck Grassley term limits out, whoever runs right behind him, they got the money. They're going to go and buy him just the same. And they'll be showing them off as their new shiny uh, pony or whatever the heck it is. We have got to get that kind of money out of politics. And it starts with getting people elected who refuse to accept PAC money um, and getting a Supreme Court that understands uh, the devastation that that has caused in our political system as well. Well, I, I, I fear that. Unfortunately, special interests that control the Supreme Court, um, it's not going to change in its current um, status quo. I think the only way to change that would be to expand the Supreme Court and add the justices on there to match the U.S. District Courts, U.S. Circuit Courts, and to expand the Supreme Court because the right now, those special interests have too much of a stranglehold on the Supreme Court as it sits. I mean, look at Clarence Thomas. What he did was totally and utterly unethical. You know, if I, you know, if I, if I, if someone were to give me something as a union representative that is in a value of over $250, I have to report that to the federal government on an LM30. I don't take anything from anybody for that reason is that I don't want to have to fill out that form and report. I don't take a pencil from anybody. Right. I, don't, I don't want to, to have to fill out that form, but, but a Supreme court justice can take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and not be held accountable. That's a disgrace. He, he should, he should resign. That is so unethical and so corrupt. And I can't believe that it's allowed. And there's right. no code of ethic for, 
ethics for the Supreme Court. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, we're coming up on our 40, 45 minutes on the, on the show, and uh, you've been a great guest, and I'd love to have you come back, and we can do another one of these. Um, but I'm going to give you the closing words, and then I'm going to wrap this rascal up. TJ, thanks for coming on. Power to the people, power to the unions, and the floor is yours, brother. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciated you inviting me to the program. I mean, this was a very good conversation. I hope that uh, your listeners really get some value out, out of it. And I hope that if they if we have, um, you know, union members that are listening to this thing, you share it with some of your other coworkers or uh, peers so that they kind of can get on the uh, same page with what's going on um, and, uh, you know, do get, educate themselves with what's going on politically, what's in their best interests, um, all that stuff matters. And we can only achieve growth and prosperity by working together for a common cause. And that's what we need to do. So with that, uh, thank you again. I'd love to come back. I know we went over, but you know, that's how it goes with me every time I could talk for, you know, ever and ever. So Right on, brother. Same here. And and we will have you back. I'm working on a couple of different show ideas. Um, but with that said, to the listeners out there, if you like these shows, you like these interviews, hit that like and subscribe button. Tune into the Heartland Podcast. And here's some of the other shows that are on that network because they do a great job at bringing tabletop issues to the general public. It's not all union. Um, they cover everything from education to unions to government spending. They have some great content at the Heartland Podcast. Tune in. You won't be disappointed. This is Glenn from Laborfront. I'm out. It's Glenn from Laborfront. I'm out.